Science Faction is a show about unbelievable discoveries. Science Faction! You're listening to Science Faction. Today on Science Faction, we're bringing you a story about fish that can walk. Fish that can leave the water and live on land, at least for a while. I'm Dalal. I'm Andrea. This is Fish with Feet. Science Faction 101. We speak in the thousand most used words. The researchers we talk to don't. These thousand words come from the Opera Five Text Editor. Made by scientist Theo Sanderson. <laughs> Theo Sanderson. We build on these accepted words using prefixes and suffixes. And we allow the use of numbers and names. From the names of people and places to the names of life forms and scientific fields. We see these few little exceptions as key to bringing you stories factually and informatively. And now for the show. To tell this story right, we've got to start at a moment many years ago. A time so long ago, there were no four-legged animals living on land. No mice, no dogs, no monkeys, no humans, who are, in a sense, a four-legged animal. But in the water, which at that time covered even more of the Earth than it does today, there were fish. Lots of fish. We don't often think of these legless, cold-blooded animals as our relatives, but most scientists agree that prehistoric fish are what gave rise to the first four-legged animals. It's the little flippers of fish that helped them raise themselves out of the water and that slowly transformed into legs and arms for getting around on land. Somewhere between 375 to 360 million years ago, the fish, Ichthyostega, thought to be one of the first four-legged animals walked out of water onto land. Why, you might be wondering, would a fish leave underwater to live on land? Why leave their safe and sound home for the complete unknown? Well, it turns out the water wasn't so safe and sound for all fish. If you think about way, way back in the day, when there were just vertebrates, just fish swimming around in the ocean, and they were competing with each other. Some were eating each other. It was a bit of a scary place. There were really big predators eating little fishes. And so if there was some way that you could get out of the water onto land, A, to get away from the big mean fish that are trying to eat you, and B, to eat all those delicious insects that no one else was eating, you would have a huge advantage. That is the lively voice of our in-house specialist on today's show. I am Emily Standen, and I'm a new professor at Ottawa U in Ottawa, Canada. Dr. Standen, Emily, has been fixated on fish since she was a kid. Emily studies how and why fish move. Well, I am an evolutionary biomechanist, and what that means is I look at how animals move, and so uh, I really wanted to know how did those first fish way back in the day actually use their fins to crawl out and explore land. And it made me start to think, well, how would you take a fin and use it in a totally new context? Like, for instance, on land. This question is at the heart of today's show. At some point, fish made the move from water to land, and their flippers gave way to what we now call arms and legs. 
The more arm-like and leg-like flippers became, the better those early land animals could get around on land. Those animals that suit that environment perfectly and can survive and reproduce really well in that environment will reproduce, and their babies will look like them, and they'll reproduce, and they'll reproduce, and so you get all of these animals that match their environment. These ideas are all based on the early founding work of naturalist Charles Darwin. Evolution is the process where animals change over time because of their environments. So as environments change, animals change. The way that living things look is largely based on the biological information they get from their parents. The passing on of information from parents to baby was discovered by plant lover Gregor Mendel in the 1800s who ran simple experiments on pea plants. He showed that the way that parent plants look, their color and their form, decide the looks of their offspring. And for a long time, scientists thought that's all there was to it. But we're learning that there's a lot more at play here. We all have a genome, which is a genetic code that tells us how we're going to be. But for every genetic code, there are multiple actual phenotypes, which is just how you look. So different morphologies that can come out of the same genetic code. In other words, the same biological information can be expressed in many different ways. Phenotypic plasticity is really just um, the number of different ways you can look with the same genetic material. Often environment influences that. An easy way to think about this is how we behave in response to our surroundings. Humans do this. Today was really cold, so when I left my house this morning, I put on a whole bunch of jackets, my toque, my scarf, everything, so that I would be warm. So my environment, i.e. it's really cold outside, made me change my behavior and I put on a whole bunch of clothes. This type of response to a surrounding is important in understanding how and why fish made the shift from water to land. Because we were interested in the fin to limb transition and, and really, really interested in how fins might be used on land. We needed an animal that uh, was similar to what those ancient animals might have looked like, like the fish before they got out on land. And so we looked down the tree of fishes. There's a big tree of fish, thousands of species, and we walked all the way down to the bottom of it and found the first possible ancestor to all of those, which is Polypterus, that's living. Polypterus senegalis, big name. It just means multi-fins or multi-wings. And uh, it's an African fish. It comes from the Nile Basin, and it's freshwater. They also conveniently have lungs. Even if they spend almost all of their time in water, they have the ability to live outside of it. We chose them because they have a very similar morphology to some of the fossil fishes that we think were the first to crawl out on land. Emily wanted to know if she could bring about the same changes in these fish that their far-off relatives first underwent when they moved onto land. If she raised Polypterus on land, would they become better walkers than if they grew up in the water? This question is important because it tells us if changes within one animal's lifetime caused by its immediate surroundings can lead to long-lasting changes. The kind of changes that do get passed on from parents to offspring through biological information. Could it have been in part through this type of change that fish shifted to four-legged animals? Emily's team wanted to know the answer to this very question, so they came up with a simple but smart experiment using a bunch of polypterus. It was 150 fish in total. 
we ordered the polypterus. You can get them from the pet trade, which is great because you're not pulling animals from the wild. These are bred in captivity. They were roughly 60 to 70 days at that point old and, and about five to six centimeters long. So they were tiny, tiny guys. So they took these 150 babies and broke them into two groups. 75 of them were raised in water and the other half on land, allowing her to test for differences in their walking abilities. We put them in aquariums that were moist but didn't have enough water for them to float. And then, you know when you go to the grocery store and sometimes you're picking out your lettuce and the misters come on, you get a bit wet? And we had salad misters on the fish at all times so that they were always wet and moist. Because although these guys can breathe air and be on land, they need to stay very moist. So salad misters with a little skim of water, happy as clams those fish were. Emily and her team then took care of these fish in their new homes for the better part of a year to get them used to their surroundings. Then they could start asking the questions that interested them. So we wanted to know two things. We wanted to know, did their walking change because they were raised on land? And did their swimming change because they were raised on land? So is there a trade-off there? Do you get really good at walking, but then you lose some ability in swimming or vice versa? And that's a really interesting idea because maybe the ways in which the fish could change to become better walkers would make them worse at getting around in water. To answer the first of their questions, did their walking change? They had to get the fish to walk. We asked the fish, very politely, if they would walk uh, across just a, a regular substrate. And so we asked them to walk across that and film them using high-speed video. Uh, from a couple of angles so that we could see how their fins moved in three dimensions. We measured things like how high did they lift their heads and how fast did they move their fins and, and when did they plant their fins and when, how did they support themselves as they used that fin to step. And then we also uh, filmed them swimming. They watched and walked these fish for months. And the whole time you don't know you don't know whether there's differences until you get to do the comparison and do the math. We might not be able to just look at the fish and know that these differences are there, but they would greatly change their ability to walk or move through water. That was part one of the study. And then the second thing we looked at was their anatomy. So um, the fish were put into a micro CT scanner and we visualize the bones that support the pectoral fin. The pectoral fin is the fin at the front. So we wanted to see all the bones that support that fin. The researchers expected to see differences in the bodies of land and water fish because of how different their surroundings were. When you think about two different habitats, water and land, the, the major difference is gravity. If you're raised on land and you spend all of your time walking around fighting gravity, does that change how your bones develop and grow? And when we tested them, they actually showed great differences. So, so the fish that were raised on land, they walked more effectively. What this actually means is that they could see a number of differences in the way land and water fish walked. The land fish planted their fins closer to their bodies, which allowed them to lift their heads higher off the ground. And then as they stepped over their fin, it slipped less. And in terms of their bodies, fish don't have necks. They don't really need them. So in water, when you're feeding, it's really easy. You can approach your food from any angle. 
and it's great. You just move your body behind you, no big deal. But once on land, and you're stuck on that two-dimensional plate, you need to be able to move your neck to get at your food. You need to be able to bend a bit. The shoulder, which in fish is joined right to the head, got smaller and less strong, making space for the eventual formation of a neck. And what's amazing about this is that it's close to what we saw in the past when fish first moved out of water onto land. Indeed, when you look at the fossil record, that's one of the things that happens in these skeletons of fish moving into tetrapods, that their neck starts to develop. The changes in the bones that we see in our terrestrial polypterus mirror the changes you see in the animals that make the, the progression onto land. Emily and her team's work is the first study to show how individual animals' responses to their surroundings within their lifetime can change the course of animal history. The passing on of parent to offspring biological information is not the only means that might have led life from water onto land. This is the first study that shows that plasticity might give us some insight into macroevolutionary changes. The big question that's left is whether this sort of within lifetime response to surroundings will be, or was, passed on to kids. Will the offspring of the new landfish also be better walkers? Not if the offspring weren't on land as well. Without the presence of new surroundings, this ability is likely lost. I would not think that, that that would then be assimilated into the genome and passed on to the young immediately. Because the environment is inducing that plastic response, it's not because it's genetically locked in yet. It might be more of a matter of time. And really, the only way to know this is to study the offspring of these polypterists. Which seems to be where this research is now heading. We're excited to see where this story about our past can take our future. What new doors this science will open. Science does all sorts of amazing things for us. It makes our medicine better. It builds our technologies better. It, it helps us be, you know, better societies and better humans. But it's also just really interesting. And I think the more we know about the animals that surround us and the animals we once were back in evolutionary time, the more we have a, an understanding of the planet as, in, as a whole. And I think that sort of broadening of, of the mind is it just important, particularly when we face modern challenges. You know, we just have to think we're not the only ones here. If we understand how things change, we may be able to foresee how different things are going to change as the planet shifts and changes. Hi, I'm producer Nick Schofield. Thanks for listening to episode five of Science Faction, Fish with Feet. We're done for now, but we do want to hear from you. Get in touch with us on Twitter at SciFact Radio. And search for us on Facebook. Science Faction is Dalal Hanna and Andrea Reed with sounds and music made by Nick Schofield and is supported by Jeanne Valentaire. Visit us online at sciencefaction.ca. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, thanks again.